Last week we talked about the most important decision that you'll ever make or ever will make. And it's the decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we were reminded that there are so many blessings that await you, but they aren't fully yours until you accept them. And then all of those things are absolutely yours. The love, the care, the protection, the redemption, the adoption, and love of God, all yours for the claiming. In a world where there are so many things that are out of your control, do not overlook the one decision that is within your control. Truly the most important life-giving, soul-saving decision that you will ever make. And this morning we're going to look at the toughest decision that you'll ever make. In fact, researchers estimate that the average adult makes between 70 and 227 conscious decisions every day. And as many as 35,000 subconscious ones. I don't know where they got these numbers. That seems a little bit ridiculous to me. I don't know if they're thinking breathe in, breathe out. I mean, certainly subconscious. Um, But in any case, the number's probably more than you ever thought or realized. Some are small, right? And some have short-term influence. And some are big deal things. Inevitably, there will be some that you regret. But there is one decision that can be very difficult. And it's a very important one. So I'm going to digress for a moment. Last night, I officiated a wedding for a wonderful wonderful couple by the name of Jordan and Tyler. And and there's some traditional aspects of a wedding ceremony. You know, there's the the lovely processional with the groomsmen in the black tie and the the bridesmaids in their lovely dresses. And and Jordan's father escorted her down some granite steps. You can kind of see those there. uh, And around a pool to the altar where he and Jordan's mother presented her to Tyler. Groom Tyler, not me. But before the vows and before the rings and unity candles, I shared some instructions with them. And if you indulge me, I'm going to share these with you this morning. These are the words I gave them. I said, Jordan and Tyler, the ceremony of marriage in which you come to be united is the first and oldest ceremony in all the world. Celebrated in the beginning of the presence of God, marriage is a gift of God, given to comfort the sorrows of life and to magnify its joys. Marriage is the clasping of hands, the blending of hearts, the union of two lives as one. And I said, your marriage must stand not by the authority of the state, not by anything I say, nor by the seal of the wedding certificate itself, but by rather it must stand by the strength of their love. It must stand by their devotion to one another in good and bad times. Finally, it must stand because of God's participation in their relationship. I said marriage can be the greatest human relationship that they will ever experience. However, in order for marriage to reach its full potential, they must allow God to play a primary role in their relationship. He knows their thoughts and their needs. He understands their thoughts, their hearts, and their love for one another. In fact, it was God who created that love and excitement that they were feeling feeling while they were there standing before me right then. It was God who put that in them. And we can easily say God knows them and he knows you better than know yourself so if you include him he'll keep help keep that delightful awareness of each other and i said as often said the ideal marriage is like an eternal triangle so picture a triangle and i said you know each the husband and the wife are at the bottom of this triangle and god is at the very top and as you get closer to god you also become closer to one another and i said certainly You want your new life to be perfect. And you have visions of an eternity of joy. And I said, look around you. 
There are all these people here, friends and family, and we want that same thing for you. But I said, let me caution you. It won't be that way all the time. Unfortunately, sadness and heartache find their way into every life. I said, however, that eternal triangle remains unbroken. No problem is too great. And I said, keep communication open between you. and Life will be sweet. And I looked at Tyler and I said, Tyler, love Jordan as your wife. With all your being as Christ, love the church. And your wants and needs will be met. And I looked at Jordan and I said, likewise, if you will respect, love, and honor Tyler as your husband, he will love you and care for you all the days of your life. And I said, let me tell you both to remember that eternal triangle. Keep your spiritual eyes and ears open to God. The source of love and fulfillment will be yours. And I said, I promise you, he will lead you in the capacities you've never dreamed you possessed, and he will lavish blessings on you that you didn't know that he already had in store for you. And then I paused and I gave them some instructions because they were ready now to, all right, it was 91 degrees, we're all in wool tuxes, and like, it's hot. And there were bees behind me in those flowers. <laughs> True story. Um, and, and so we're ready to go on. But I said, you know, before we get to the I wills and the I do's, I want you to say no to something first. And I said, I want you to say no reservations, no retreats, and no regrets. And I say, when you say, I take you, Jordan, to be my wife, or I take you, Tyler, to be my husband, you're saying, I take you without reservation. You are willingly entering into a marriage covenant where every area of your life will be joined together. Your lives legally, physically, emotionally, financially, and spiritually will be joined together. It's God's good design. So no holding back, no reservations. Secondly, when you say for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and health, you're saying no retreats. You're saying I choose to love this person regardless of what the future holds. This is where it gets important. If your future is like that of most of us, it will be full of good days and some hard ones, and that's life. Most of the time, we think of love as a warm feeling that pulls two people together, right? But that's actually romance. Love is a decision. Love is a decision. When you share your vows, I said, you'll be saying, I choose to love you. I will love you during good days, days of contentment, days of companionship, days of happiness, Days of sexual fulfillment. And I also choose to love you during days of heartache, days of confusion and frustration, and days of stress. And I said, no retreats. And finally, I said, no regrets. I said, don't look back. Don't look over your shoulder and wonder what if. Only look ahead as you walk through life arm in arm, heart to heart. Enjoy life together. Enjoy each other. Do special things for each other. No regrets. And I said, look at your family and friends around you. And you can say the same thing here. Everyone who's ever stood where they stood last night can remember that no reservations, no retreats, and no regrets is good advice for establishing a life, a home, and a family together. Have you considered that love is a choice? God chose to love you. You chose to love your spouse. You must choose to love others. I realized that I was speaking to a couple last night about marriage, but consider these instructions for every relationship in your life. You say, I commit to treating you, my neighbor, treating you, my coworker, my stranger in the aisle at Walmart. I commit to treating you with the love and respect that you deserve, regardless of your health or wealth or anything that differentiates us or that we may disagree on. 
I commit to loving you as Jesus commanded me to, regardless of whatever troubles or joys we may experience. In Matthew 5, 43-47, as a part of the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus' words. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? For even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Now, during our Sunday morning Bible study time, we're studying the New Testament book of Acts. And this is an account of the earliest gatherings of the believers following the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And in many ways, it is a story of the foundation of the church. And in the early chapters of the book of Acts, we find the disciples preaching and teaching. They were finding the same kind of mixed reception that Jesus did. They were multiplying the numbers of followers of Jesus. So they had people that were coming and, and they were making a difference in the life. And, and God was blessing their numbers and multiplying the believers and becoming more and more influential as, as the message of the gospel spread. But at the same time, they were facing accusations and persecutions, just as Jesus did. At the end of chapter 6, we find Stephen. Verse 8 describes him as a man full of God's grace and power who performed great wonders and signs among the people. This, of course, stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. Stephen was seized by the Sanhedrin and began speaking to them about God. And I'm going to pick up at verse 54. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now Saul, this is our first introduction to the man that would become Paul the Apostle. Let's continue to read verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. We know that he died. Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Are you hearing some similarities to the story of Jesus? Even to the point of praying, God, forgive them. This is an act of love. An act of love towards God and Jesus as he lost his life for them. And an act of love towards those who persecuted him. Ephesians 5, 2, Apostle Paul writes, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Romans twelve fourteen instructs us to bless those who persecute us, to bless and not to curse. Now, several years ago, we did an exercise. I'm going to repeat that this morning. I want you to think of someone that you really love. Don't say out loud in case it's not the person next to you, but someone you really love, a spouse, a child, a friend. Think of that person and keep them in your mind and say this, okay? God, thank you for this person and all that they mean to me. I thank you for the opportunities that I have to share my life and create memories with them. 
I ask that we encourage each other and hold each other accountable and love each other just as commanded and modeled it. I pray for blessings and protection for them and everything they hold dear in accordance with your will. Help me to show them love without condition or limits, to forgive without reservation or prompting, and to do so absolutely. I pray that they are a blessing to you and find salvation through your Savior. What a wonderful prayer for the people we love. And that probably wasn't too hard, right? In fact, it probably felt pretty good. And I want you to keep that joy and model prayer in your mind and pray it over people regularly and often. Not necessarily word for word, but remember those things, right? We want people to live a life in accordance with God's will and to be blessed accordingly. We want to be a good influence and be able to hold them accountable and likewise. Let's take the next step. At the opposite end of the spectrum is someone that you probably really dislike. And I'm not going to say hate. That's really strong. But there's probably someone that's like the last person you'd think of to put in that sentence. Right? It's likely someone that was wronged you, offended you, or hurt you in some way. And your inclination may be to seek some vindication. After all, hurting people hurt people. Right? Hurting people hurt people. But let's do what we are commanded to do. Hold that person's name in front of your mind and let's pray again. But with the same sincerity and joy, and joy we did a second ago. God, thank you for the life of this person as well. And all that they mean to me. I thank you for the opportunities that I have to share my life and create memories with them. And I ask that we encourage each other, hold each other accountable, and love each other just as Jesus commanded and modeled it. I pray for blessings and protection for them and everything that they hold dear in accordance with your will. Help me to show them love without condition or limits, to forgive without reservation or prompting, and to do so absolutely. I pray that they are a blessing to you and find salvation through our Savior. Was that therapeutic? It's okay. It's okay. It should be, but if it's not, it's okay. Are you feeling a sense of peace? And maybe you aren't. Because I think we hope for this cathartic release, you know, the kind that comes from like hanging up the phone when you're angry. I mean, what a way cell phones are, right? How can you angrily push that button, right? Or, or some of that cathartic release when we, when we just explode with anger. Not healthy, not right, but there's something that, that we just say, okay, now I have gotten it out. And you likely won't get that kind of release this way. But as you continue to do the right thing, your perspective will slowly change as you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's going to sound familiar. Eventually, you will find peace. This is a scriptural promise from God. Until then, take confidence knowing that you're acting godly. I am loving this person equally. My neighbor, my friend, the stranger, the, the person wronged me, my spouse, my mother, my child. I'm loving God and I'm loving them. And it's godly because it's exactly what God does for you. Of all of the decisions you make each day, how many do you consider God in the process? If we are to do all things for the glory of God, shouldn't he be instrumental in our thought processes, we decide what these things are. Yet despite our unwillingness to do so, and certainly despite our sinful nature, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. This is also a scriptural promise. In Paul's letter to the early church in Rome, specifically Romans 8, 38-40, he says, I am convinced, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Are you acting like you believe that? If not, then how can you understand what it love means to love others? You need to first understand what God's love is for you. And that's why we spend time in God's word. There's a pastor by the name of Grant Fishbook that is known for asking this question of the groom during the wedding ceremony. I did not do this. But he, he looks at the groom and, and he says, hey, Jimmy, I'm going to ask you a very important question. This is right in the middle of the wedding. He says, and I didn't prepare you for this question. And I'm confident you know the answer. And everyone needs to hear your answer. He says, she needs to hear your answer. I need to hear your answer. And God needs to hear your answer. And he says, this question is so important that if you get it wrong, I'm going to excuse myself and I will not be officiating your wedding. Now, so when I heard the story, I'm like, mm, no, no. And I'm sure the groom is nervous because he says, I didn't prepare you for this, right? And as I was hearing the story, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming nervous for the guy. And I'm thinking, what could it possibly be? And at some part of my brain is imagining the bride in this beautiful white gown glaring at her fiance. Don't blow this, buddy, right? And the question the pastor asked the groom was this. He says, if it came down to it, would you die for her? If it came down to it, would you die for her? John 5, 13, Jesus' own words, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Didn't, Jesus didn't just say love your spouse and be willing to give up your life for your spouse. We know that Jesus does not differentiate the treatment of friends and enemies, neighbors and strangers, right? He talked about them equally. In fact, it's in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, Jesus replied to the question, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy 6, 5. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. And he says, all the law and the prophets. Now, this is the Old Testament. There's the law and the prophets and the writings. So he's saying all of the stuff that you know as biblical law, Hebrew law, the Hebrew Bible. He says, all this hangs on these two commandments. This is how important it is. You must love. And our verse to remember from today was, was what 1 Corinthians 13, the, you know, the, the, the love scripture, right? If I, if I have this, if I have prophecy, if I have given everything I have, but I don't have love, it sounds horrible, right? I'm paraphrasing greatly. But he says it's just a resounding gong. It's a, a terrible noise to the Lord. Holocaust survivor Ellie Weasel says this. She says, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. And this is proof. You must choose to love and you must choose to love as Jesus loves. John 34, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And John 15, 12 echoes this. My commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. From previous morning messages, we know that there is a difference between God's love and ours. There shouldn't be, but there is. Our love is temporal, right? But God's love is eternal. Human love is fractional, but God's love is total and absolute. Human love is sentimental and based on a feeling. God's love is very practical and functional. 
And our love can be conditional. But God's love is unconditional. Again, Scripture instructs you to love as God loves and as Jesus models love. 1 John 4, 7-21 talks about God's love and ours. Starting at verse 19, he says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Charles Spurgeon once shared these powerful words. He says, Christ loved you before you loved him. That's what we just read. He loved you when you were, there was nothing good in you. He loved you though you insulted him, though you despised him, though you rebelled against him. He has loved you right on and never ceased to love you. He has loved you in the backs, your backslidings and loved you out of them. He has loved you in your sins, in your wickedness and folly. His loving heart was still eternally the same and he shed his heart's blood to prove his love for you. He has given you what you want on earth and provided for you a habitation in heaven. And he closes with this. Now, Christian, your religion claims from you that you should love as your master loved. How can you imitate him unless you love too? Put this aside one more. There's that sentence. I'm going to close by reading this sentence one more time as our challenge in prayer for this week. Now, Christian, okay, he's talking to you. Your religion claims for you that you should love as your master loved. How can you imitate him unless you love too? Let's make that our prayer. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your abiding love, your unconditional love. And though we may deserve far less than what you give us, Lord, we thank you for the promise of life eternal with you. We thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your own son's life to redeem us. Lord, as we may hear this morning's message and really focus on what that means as marriage, also move on our hearts to put ourselves in a different part of that story. Jesus loved the church. We are, he is the bridegroom and we are, the church is the bride. And if we look at every other person as if we're making this kind of lifelong commitment to love and value and cherish in a way that you love and value and cherish us, what a difference that would make in the world. Lord, at times it may feel like there's not a thing we can do to make things better, but there absolutely is. Lord, we ask that you encourage us and empower us and never let us have a regret, have retreat, or anything else that just cause us any pause in following your great commandment, which is to love others as you have loved us. God, as always, I just want to close with a word of thank you again for who you are, this wonderful church and this congregation. Please bless everyone gathered here this morning and those that listen online. May this message make a difference in all of our lives as we continue to seek you and to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.